There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of Usher? This is so scary that I'm not sure you should read it. And if you do read it, read it before the sun goes down. And if you read it late at night, I won't be responsible for the dreams you have. That was actor Charles Keating and mystery writer Laura Lipman. The subject was Edgar Allan Poe's tale of gothic horror, The Fall of the House of Usher. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Born in 1809, Edgar Allan Poe is a pioneer in science fiction and detective fiction, as well, most famously, in gothic fiction. While today we tend to overlook his considerable ability as a poet, in his own time he was best known as the author of The Raven, Although acknowledged as one of the first of the modern short story writers, Poe's mastery of that genre is often overlooked because of his ability to terrify readers with his macabre tales. But Poe's influence on modern fiction is pervasive. As one critic wrote, Poe came along and made literature safe for ghosts and murderers and crime-solving know-it-alls, for the subconscious mind in all its murk and madness. And nowhere is the murk and madness of the subconscious more apparent than in Poe's classic story, The Fall of the House of Usher. For those of you who haven't read the story recently, here's a thumbnail sketch with apologies to Poe. The Fall of the House of Usher begins with an unnamed narrator who has been summoned by a letter from his boyhood friend whom he hasn't seen in many years. This is Roderick Usher. Roderick lives in a distant countryside in a grand but decaying house, alone with his sister Madeline. Both suffer from various unspecified physical and mental ailments. During the course of the narrator's visit, Roderick informs him that Madeline has died, and she must be entombed in a family crypt in the house. So the narrator helps Roderick inter Madeline, sealing her in a coffin behind a bolted iron door. But Madeline is not dead and the horror of that premature burial intensifies until the house itself literally can no longer contain it. The Fall of the House of Usher, which is a selection of the Big Read program, has become the model for Gothic horror stories. With Halloween on the horizon, it seemed a particularly good time to revisit the House of Usher. Joining me in a discussion of this great short story is mystery writer and multiple Edgar Award winner Laura Lipman. Aside from being a great mystery writer herself, Laura also lives in Baltimore, the city perhaps most associated with Edgar Allan Poe. Like many of us, Laura first read Poe in high school. But then, a decade or so ago, she began to reread Edgar Allan Poe in a very different light than she had as a young reader. Well, one thing that I didn't appreciate when I read Poe as a kid is that his technical mastery is quite astonishing. There are things that Poe did with language, particularly in his poetry, 
that as someone who's not trained as a literary critic, I don't have the vocabulary to describe it, but I certainly could recognize it and appreciate it. Um, Poe is a really wonderful poet. I think we, that gets a bit lost. I, I think people who only know the raven tend to not recognize that, but I found the poetry quite wonderful. And what I found interesting in the stories that I read and reread, I began to notice that Poe is not particularly interested in motive. Motive is a much more modern concern in the crime novel. I mean, he did create one of the great original detectives in Murder in the Rue Morgue, and he would write these horrible tales of violence and crime, almost always from the point of view of the killer. And he seldom provided any reason or rationale for why the killers behaved as they did. In both um, The Telltale Heart and The Cask of Amontillado, two of his most famous stories, there is no reason other than the fact in The Telltale Heart that he finds his neighbor irritating in The Cask of Amontillado. The line is, I had borne many insults, and he knows them well. That's not it word for word. And I, I thought, well, that's very interesting. The stories are, of course, often concerned with the supernatural, a sense of the gothic that is not always part of modern crime fiction. And those were all the things that I noticed as I went back into them. And yet, I found them remarkably accessible to a modern reader. You know, in reading something like The Fall of the House of Usher, the only thing that sets it aside from a modern tale of horror may be the length at which Poe describes certain things. There is a lot of information given about the house. So things perhaps are in this, what you would think of as a pre-cinematic age. There is more attention paid to creating a visual sense of what is happening, more description. But other than that, it's, it's really easy for a modern reader. I don't think most people would, would find it difficult at all to read Poe, even now. I'd like to talk about the fall of the House of Usher, and I, I think I'd like to enter it through atmosphere, because certainly in that story, but in all of Poe, from the poetry to his short fiction, he is a master of creating atmosphere, I think. There's a very telling line early on in the fall of the House of Usher in which the narrator describes the sense of dread and horrible gloom that he feels as he approaches the house. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone, on horseback, through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. And I think there's something that is so key to Poe and his mindset, because he adds that, and, and there was no pleasure in it, as there often is with that kind of feeling. So he's admitting to the fact that we like, on some level, to be scared, that we might have certain romantic attachments to dread and gloom, but this is a house, a place, 
an atmosphere. It's just so dark. I mean, there's this description of the house itself that on the individual level, the pieces appear to be rotting, and yet the whole is quite magnificent. And he talks about how the wood looks as wood that's been sealed up yet is still worm-eaten. That's an incredible image. And that's all in the first two pages, I believe. (laughs) Uh, I think in The Fall of the House of Usher, again, as in many of Poe's works, the sense of claustrophobia is really telling. And for me, what's so surprising about Usher is that, in fact, he's talking about and describing a very large house, which seems as close as a tomb. Yes. Poe was fascinated with entombment, the problems of being buried alive. I have not satisfactorily really been able to determine how real a threat that was in the mid-19th century. I can't believe it was at such a level that it would preoccupy. It's, you know, this is far from the only story in which this appears in Poe. We have the cask of Amontillado in which a man is sealed up, is buried alive. And in that case, there is no punishment for that crime. The, the killer gets away with it. And we have the fall of the House of Usher. There is a story, Berenice. Berenice, which happens to be one of Poe's early stories, one of the few works that he wrote and completed in his time here in Baltimore, is utterly grotesque because it not only features a woman who is buried alive, but the story asks us to consider that her cousin falls under some sort of psychotic spell, opens her grave, and removes all of her teeth even as she lives. It is one of the most disturbing things I've ever read in my life. And once again, in The Fall of the House of Usher, we have someone being buried alive. And I've been thinking a lot recently, knowing we were going to have this conversation, about to what extent Roderick Usher knew that. It doesn't seem to make sense. I'm I'm careful. I try not to project too much onto text. I really try to take them at what is on the page and not create suppositions or create a position and, and then try to defend it through increasingly kooky theories. (laughs) There are things in the text that clearly argue for Roderick Usher behaving as any grieving brother might. He he wants to put his sister in the tomb because he feels that whatever illness she suffered from is one that might be of interest to doctors. He's, He's attempting to preserve her body and ask his friend to help him, you know, and the friend says that the blush that he sees on her cheek and her chest is, is commonly associated with the kind of malady that she has. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention. And Usher, divining, perhaps, my thoughts, murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that, 
sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid, and having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. These details argue that Roderick Usher is doing something without any hidden or ulterior motive. His sister has died. He creates a temporary tomb. But then we have the information late in the story that he has known for days that she is alive and trying to get out. Why doesn't he go to her? Why doesn't he, at the very least, investigate these odd premonitions he has about the sounds coming from his sister's temporary tomb? Why does he sit there in the grand living room of the House of Usher and ask his friend to read him a story in hopes that he will be distracted and wait until she appears on the doorstep? And this, this is very mysterious. I thought, I, I'm not sure what kills Roderick Usher. Why does he die? His sister comes in. She's got blood all over her. She's apparently in a quite weakened state, having been in a tomb for almost a week. And she dies and he dies. They go down to the floor together. Like he's been quite ill, too. But is, you know, is it a heart attack? Does she do something to him? Is she more than a frail human being? You know, I, I mean, I really welcomed the opportunity to go back and read this story because since I've been thinking about it in preparation for this interview, I have found much to think about. And I found myself left very queasy by this story. I don't think Roderick Usher is simply a well-meaning grieving brother. I think what's interesting is how much Poe leaves to our imagination. He's so purposefully vague that he leaves it to the reader to fill in our own blanks by presenting these questions and then not answering them, but leaving enough tantalizing hints, I think. It's almost as if Poe, who did know a great deal about literary theory, anticipated deconstructionism and, and thought this will be a divine joke to play on future literary critics to, to not give them quite enough and, and leave them to fight about it. Now, at the very least, I think it is fair to say that the relationship between Roderick and Madeline is unhealthy. They are unhealthy. She's dying. He's quite ill. He seems to be showing signs of an encroaching emotional illness, mental illness. She is probably suffering something similar. They have been driven quite mad by something, by their family's own inbreeding, by a relationship that they should not have had. Something has gone terribly wrong in the House of Usher. That's, that's certainly fair to say. 
Oh, or the house itself. He even does leave that strand. Is it the house itself that's so malevolent? You know, there's a very, very interesting theory about Poe's death that has been put forward by a Baltimore scientist named Albert Donay. And it also applies to the fall of the House of Usher, according to Albert Donay. He has long believed and tried to advance the theory that what killed Poe was repeated exposure to gas lighting. He believes that Poe was a victim of long-term carbon monoxide poisoning. And this was a feature of the gas lighting used in certain American cities at that time. It's an interesting theory. I mean, he has, you know, found, he would say that Roderick Usher, as described in this story, could be a victim of exposure to gas lighting and that all of the symptoms fit. There's so many theories about Poe's death and there's so many attempts to, again, read between the lines. You know, I, I, I don't know what's going on in that house. And one of the things that's interesting is why does Usher send for his old friend? Clearly, Usher sees that something is about to happen. Does he want a witness? Does he want protection? What is it that is so important to Usher that he reaches out to someone that he knew when he was much younger, someone with whom he had passed relatively normal time in the world at large and enjoyed reading and talking about art, and they'd been to school together. Again, you, you could argue different sides of it. You could say, well, he knows that his sister means him harm, and he wants his friend there as protection. Or he could simply see that the end is coming and for some reason wants a witness or thinks that his friend will save him. I have no idea what it is. I have no idea why his friend, the unnamed narrator, goes and stays. I think that's the other side of the coin. The unnamed narrator in The Fall of the House is a remarkably good sport. You know, he has been thrust into this bizarre household. I mean, even upon approach, it scares him. His first glimpse of his old friend is agonizing. Surely man had never before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It was with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the one being before me with the companion of my early boyhood. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and a family evil and one for which he despaired to find a remedy. A mere nervous affection, he immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unnatural sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me, although perhaps the terms and the general manner of the narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. 
The odours of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light, and there were but peculiar sounds. And these, from stringed instruments, which did not inspire him with horror. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus afflicted him could be traced to a more natural and far more palpable origin. To the severe and long-continued illness, indeed, to the evidently approaching dissolution of a tenderly beloved sister, his sole companion for long years, his last and only relative on earth. And yet he stays and he kind of ignores the signs that things are getting, or he certainly doesn't complain to, to Roderick Usher about the way things are going. And that fateful night that everything finally comes together, he's there reading to him. I, I found that, I'd forgotten that detail, that there is this, you know, the old story within the story, that there is this old tale of knights and heroism and seeking to break down the hermit's door by Sir Ethelred. And yet, in the end, he does flee. He does realize that he can't save anyone in this house, that he can't save the house, that all they can do is, is run for his life. Fear is such an important factor in all of his work. Can you comment on how he uses it in his work? Poe is exceptional at creating an atmosphere of dread. And when he chooses to, he plunges us into a world where you know something horrible is going to happen. You simply don't know what it is. And you made the observation earlier in the interview, Poe leaves a lot of blank spaces. Poe is a subtle enough writer that he lets the reader project so much onto the text. And the primary thing that we project onto Poe's work is whatever we fear the most. In reading The Fall of the House of Usher, I tried very hard to read it this time as neutrally as possible. Don't project your own ideas. Don't project your own themes. And yet, I couldn't help but read it as a story about a woman somehow being dominated, held down, damaged by an unhealthy relationship with a man. I found myself reading it that way. I was like, what is he doing to Madeline? You know, that clearly comes from my framework. It, it's something that I write about a lot in my own work. I write about the relationships between men and women. Somewhat to my surprise, I realized that my work returns again and again to the theme of how dangerous relationships are between men and women, how much rage there is, and how, how violence is often just below the surface. And so there I am. That's just one example. And this is what I have projected on to the story. Another reader will project something completely different. Another reader, if, if you're a hypochondriac, do not read Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, who I think because he himself had health issues, obviously had a very young wife who died early from ill health. He was clearly obsessed with medical conditions. 
And I think Poe is just a nightmare for hypochondriacs. And when I read Poe, I'm glad I'm not a hypochondriac because another way to read The Fall of the House of Usher is what is Roderick suffering from? And you can look at Roderick and Madeline and think, what is going on in this house? If a reader came to Poe's work with a predisposition to believe that family is dangerous, that families are dysfunctional, then there you have the proof. It's the closeness, it's the intimacy of family that somehow destroys Roderick and Madeline. I mean, there are as many ways to read this story as there are people who will read it. The other part that I didn't get until I reread it recently was all of Roderick's art, his guitar playing, his painting, his writing. Nonetheless, you know, we think art saves. This just produces more gloom. This is one case where I will go out on a limb and say that I think on some level Poe is writing about his own relationship to his art. Poe is an unusual figure in the 19th century in that he wanted to be a full-time writer. That was a luxury very few poets and novelists had. Writers in the 19th century tended to ha- either have independent incomes or they had day jobs, you know, as, as Melville certainly did, for example. But Poe wanted to be a full-time writer and at the same time was often incredibly poor because of this. You know, he struggled all his life and he is someone who paid a real price in terms of how he lived and his health because of his determination to be a writer. And and I think in Roderick, we do see that reflected. Why do you think Poe is still discussed, referenced, so alive in the 21st century? I think it's because he really hits that that sweet spot of universal fear and dread. I think it's because the world changes, but it never gets less frightening. Technologies evolve. Developments are made in medicine. Nowadays, in the 21st century, would Madeline be allowed to drift through the rooms of her home undiagnosed? No, but the diagnosis might be even worse. What we know about her condition might make it more terrifying still. We're isolated in different ways than people were isolated in Poe's time. Yet, we will never not be fearful. Fear is part of the human condition. One of the most amazing things a writer can do is scare you. It's easy for a movie to scare you. It has all these tricks. It has the soundtrack. It can make things pop into the frame. It, it can use point of view. It, and it can use special effects to create quite horrible things. It can show you an alien bursting forward from th- someone's stomach. But to scare you and make you apprehensive just through words on a page, just through text, I think that's pretty amazing. I think writers who can do that are just phenomenal. Her decease, 
he said with a bitterness which I can never forget, would leave him, him, the hopeless and the frail, the last of the ancient race of the ushers. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, for so was she called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment and without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment not unmingled with dread, and yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me as my eyes followed her retreating steps. That was mystery writer Laura Lippman talking about the Edgar Allan Poe classic short story and big retitle, The Fall of the House of Usher, read by Charles Keating. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Instrumental music by Philip Brunel. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Josh McManus, founder of Little Things Labs, talks about creative placemaking. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.